Well, good morning. Another beautiful Sunday. A little abnormal for December. <laughs> a little in the 50s. So uh, had some friends over last night and couldn't believe it. I had our windows and doors open. <laughs> uh, quite nice. Quite nice. But as I mentioned last week, last week's sermon was part one of a two-part sermon. Now, I'm not going to read the entire chapter of John 6, but if you'll turn to John 6, I'm just going to do a quick review because in order to understand what Jesus is saying at this point, we have to understand what's happening before, what's going on now, and why he's saying what he's saying. And we've spent, now I believe it's six weeks in this chapter of John, um, And there's been a lot of different key points taking from it. So let's review those uh, before we get into this. So one, in verse two, we see that there's a large crowd that is following Jesus. Why? Because he's just left and he's been healing, performing miracles of the sick. Now, what time is it? It's the time of Passover. Now remember what Passover is, right? This is when the Lord comes through and wipes out those in Egypt and he tells the Jews to perform a sacrifice and to spread spread the blood on the doorpost and the angel of death will pass over. And so they're celebrating that for them being the chosen people. That's how they are looking at it. This is the time of celebration that they are the chosen people. And more importantly, it was God that gave the salvation. So as they're sitting here and there's this large crowd and it's the Passover time, they sit there and go, how are we going to feed all these people? Now, how many people were there? There were 5,000 and there was no food and they didn't have enough money to buy more food. And so this is the story of the five loaves and the two fish and how miraculously Jesus fed out of those five loaves and two fish the entire crowd of 5,000 plus. Now, we've discussed before that this 5,000 more than likely is 5,000 men and then there's the families and everything else that are following. So we know there's more, right? And Jesus gives thanks for the food of being able to provide for all these people. And how much did they eat? They ate until they were filled. It wasn't, hey, here's a a nibble, pass it on. Here's a nibble, pass it on. They ate till they were filled. Now, how many of us have eaten till we're filled? Thanksgiving, I ate till I was filled. I felt it. I napped afterwards. Okay? But we've all, think about that. Think about your Thanksgiving feast and how much you ate. You ate till you were filled. They ate till they were filled. And then there were 12 baskets of leftovers. So from five loaves and two fish and over 5,000 people being fed till they were filled, all of a sudden there's 12 baskets of food left over. An abundance of food. And what do the people proclaim? They start proclaiming that he is a prophet. Now, right there is a key for us to start understanding that we know after Malachi, there are no more prophets. Jewish law tells there will be no more prophets. And they start proclaiming the prophet because who are they waiting for? 
They're waiting for the prophet. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the king to return and reclaim his throne. So, with all these people, Jesus retreats to the mountains by himself. He needs some me time. He needs time with his father. And so he retreats to the mountain, and the disciples, his disciples, those traveling with him, get in a boat, and they leave. And they go to the other side of the sea, or other side of the ocean. Jesus, after he spends time with the Father and getting away from these 5,000 people, and he's not leaving because he's tired of them, he begins to know that there's, there's this thing in their heart where they're wanting him to be something he's not meant to be. They're wanting him to take over politically. They're wanting him to take over by force. They're wanting him to kick out the Romans and start ruling the country. And so Jesus leaves. But how does he leave? There's no boats. One verse, or uh, in verse 22 and 23, he gets on the water. He walks across the water to the disciples, and the disciples are like, now, okay, hold on. Am I seeing an image, or who is that coming across during these rough seas and this storm that's going on? And all of a sudden, there's Jesus, and they're scared. Why are they scared? Why would you be scared if you saw somebody walking across water? Hold on, wait, something's not right here. <laughs> Am I seeing what I'm seeing? And he's demonstrating authority. The whole reason John documents this is to show Jesus' authority as he does in John 5. And they begin to realize the true power that God has, that Jesus has, that he has power over creation. And Jesus states, it is I, don't be afraid. And in an instant, they're back on land. This is a prelude to about what he's getting ready to preach because he answers, it is I, don't be afraid. Who is this I he's claiming to be? Crowds then go after Jesus, seeking Jesus. Why are they seeking him? Not because they want to be spiritually fed, as we've heard Pastor Clay sit there and discuss, but to be nourished physically. They're looking for physical nourishment. They're wanting to see these miracles and to be fed. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they ask, what must we do to be doing these works of God? Jesus answers, believe in him who he, who is he, God, has sent. Verse 29. Then they ask, well, what signs do you do? Now, wait a minute. What signs do you do? What did they just witness? They've witnessed him in John 5. Heal the sick. They've just witnessed him feed over 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish and collect 12 baskets of leftovers. They have just witnessed the fact of he's in one place at one time 
and in another place instantly in another time and going, how did you get here? And then they say, what signs do you do? Show me more proof. I can't believe yet. Jesus answers that the bread, and he talks about the manna because they start comparing Moses. Well, Moses always gave manna. Now, I want you to think about something here in this, and this came to me as I was reviewing in the back. This crowd is acting like the Israelites in the wilderness. All of a sudden there's this comparison that I begin to see that becomes very apparent. In the wilderness, what did the Israelites do? They complained and grumbled. Now, saying we'd be better off. What is happening at this point? How are they being led? They're following a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. And they're saying, show me more. Now, wait a minute. I've just been rescued from oppression. I'm going through the wilderness and I'm following a cloud and a pillar of fire and I still don't believe it's God. Feed me. Give me more. And so he provides this bread. And here in John 6, the people are saying, well, Moses gave this. Well, Jesus' answer is the fact that it wasn't Moses that gave that. It was God. It came from heaven. Verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. What is God's will? That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. So when you hear people ask, well, I wonder what God's will is for my life, it's right there, that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not the end of it. They begin to grumble. And he tells them, don't grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day, verse 44. In verse 47, he says, whoever believes in me has eternal life. In verse 48, he says two more times, I am the bread of life. In verse 51, he says it three times, I am the living bread. And in verse 10, as we reviewed last week, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Whoever feeds on the flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 54, whoever eats the bread will live forever. And we looked at why that sometimes is a hard saying, and we're going to see that here in just a second. In verses 60 and 65, as we continue part one or part two of part one sermon. So verse 60, when many of the disciples heard it, they said, 
This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense to this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some who do not believe. For Jesus knew the beginning, from the beginning, who was there and who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just humbly come before you today. As we hear your word, Lord, we ask that it pierces our hearts, that the scales are removed from our eyes and our hearts are open, Lord, as we prepare to hear this truth, Lord. Let it affect our lives. Give us understanding. Some of these things are hard saying. Some of these things we sit there and we ask, Lord, I don't understand. I'm getting confused. Lord, we just ask that you grant us this understanding, that you give us comfort, and that the fact that these words are your words, that these words come from the scriptures which you've provided in a way to communicate to us, Lord, are truth, even when they're hard to understand. Lord, we thank you for the precious gift of love that was demonstrated on the cross. Lord, as we get ready to go into these holidays, Lord, we just want to remember why we truly celebrate. We pray that this message we hear today helps us reflect as we sit around with family and friends the remembrance of the life and gift that you have provided, Lord. Lord, it is through your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to ask you, what was the purpose of John? Why is John in the scriptures? Why is he writing? Why did he document this? Why is this book of John, one of the gospels, one of the four gospels, in the scriptures? Well, John writes differently than the other three authors of the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke write in concession with each other. There's a lot of similarities in those Gospels. But John's writing for a different reason. Remember, John is straight to the point. He's that black and white individual. It's that one-two punch that he gives. He holds nothing back. And we see that in, verse, in John 20, Verses 30 and 31, as he's wrapping up the book of John, he tells us why he's writing. And so we got to remember this when we sit there and read and we read for context. We always want to ask why this is being written and what are we supposed to get out of it? And the author tells us right off the bat. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. So there's things that have happened that Jesus has done 
that aren't recorded. Why? Because it's not important to the message or the point that John is making. Some are recorded in other gospels. Some are recorded in the other books. But John here is saying, these things aren't important to why I'm reading this, writing this. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. By providing more miracles, documenting more miracles, is that going to make you a believer? No. You have witnesses witnessing stuff and they still fail to believe. That does not bring belief. And we'll see where that belief comes from here in just a moment. So as we begin to look at the passage of John 6, 60 through 65, which we're here today, let's keep this purpose in the forefront of our minds. This will help us to clearly understand what John is communicating in these verses. So one, he says, this is a hard saying. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Why was it so hard? Well, we reviewed last week, right? That one, they find it offensive. Why do they find it offensive? Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Well, because it went against the Levitical law. What did flesh and blood represent? Life, right? Life was in the blood. It was the life force. Two, blood was used for atonement. It was given in the Levitical law for the four sacrifices, for the burnt offering, for the peace offering, for the sin offering, for the humility offering. They were to slaughter and spread the blood on the sides of the altar. So when Jesus is saying, drink my blood, they're automatically connecting that to atonement and life. And they're taking offense to that because it was against the law. They were not to drink or eat. Two, some of them are prideful. They were looking for things and miracles. They were there for their own pleasure. They question because they don't want to let go. They subconsciously know that there's something wrong and something's going on. They have hearts of rebellion. Now wait a minute, Jesus, what you're saying goes against what I want to happen. Jesus, you're, you're supposed to be a ruler. You're talking about something different here. The, the, this isn't what I want. Wait a minute, Jesus, you're telling me to put myself aside. No, wait a minute, the world revolves around me. It's what I want. It's what I want to feel. He's asking them to let go of their own beliefs. Now think about that. How easy is it for us to let go and not be in control of our lives? We honestly want to be masters of our own destiny. 
We want to control. We want to know that we're in control of everything. How frustrated when we, do we get when things don't go our way? You leave five minutes late to get to school, to get to work, whatever, and you run into traffic. And, of course, you get behind the one person that does not want to keep up with the flow of traffic and decides to go 10 miles slower, <laughs> and you just can't seem to get around, right? We have no control over that, and how frustrated do we get? How frustrated do we get when things don't go the way we want them to go? They were intellectual. They were prideful. They knew what the law said. They knew what they were taught. And this is what has been communicated to them. But this is why Jesus came. And we see this in John 1, 1 through 5. That they were beginning to misinterpret the word. They begin to realize that following Jesus, this person who they're following, meant far more than merely just hanging around him and witnessing good things. They began to realize it meant a lot more than just the physical benefits. How eager are we to chase things to chase desires, to want things, to lust after things until we begin to realize what it's going to cost us or how much effort it's going to take on our part. They begin to realize he's asking a lot more of them than what they're willing to give. And they become scandalized by his teaching. One, He's claiming he comes from heaven. How do we know this? Because they ask him, wait a minute, isn't this the son of Joseph? They find it offensive that he's claimed and used the words, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I, I am. I, why is that offensive? Because for them, those were the words that were not to be used because that was the very name of God. I am. When Moses asked God who he was, I am. Who, who should I say sent me, Lord? I am. What are the words Jesus uses? I am. He holds nothing back here when he says this. And John records it. He records it all the way from the very beginning in John 1, 1 through 5. And it is used in every chapter of John. I am. Jesus is Lord. He demands Well, he is the only answer to man's spiritual need. He demands they acknowledge their spiritual emptiness, their sin. He's highlighting the Ten Commandments here. When we sit there and we read these confessions of faith, and we talk about these commandments, understand these commandments communicate the character of God, 
who God is and who we're not. It's in remembrance of what we are supposed to be doing. They must commit to only him as their only source of salvation. There aren't other ways. He is saying, you can't just be a good person. You can't just feed the hungry. You can't just give alms. That's not the way. The only way is through belief in me. I am the bread of life. Through me, you will have eternal life. It's not Jesus plus. It's not something other than Jesus. No, I don't like that choice. I want this choice. As long as they hear what they want to hear, it's okay. Otherwise, they find it offensive. So as we go into 6, 61 through 62, we see there's nothing hidden from God. There's nothing hidden from God. He knows. He even knows our true intentions, our heart condition before we do. He's confronting them. We know truth right away because we say it. We say, if God's going to be God, there's certain things he has to have. Right? God has to be Omnipotent, what is that? He's all-powerful. If he's to be God, he's to be all-powerful, right? If I'm gonna worship somebody, do I wanna worship somebody other than someone that's all-powerful? God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knows everything. And we're gonna learn here in just a second, that is a scary thing. God being omniscient should instantly drive us to our knees should instantly drop us to our knees in worship. God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere and through all time. These words have to mean something. When we talk about these words that describe who God is, they have to mean something. These are not just words to arbitrarily say because they sound good and big. They are used to describe the immutable traits of God. Big word, immutable. Those are just traits that only God has that he does not share with us. I'd like to think I'm all-knowing sometimes. My wife will tell you otherwise. (laughs) I know I'm not all-powerful. And as much as I try, I can't be everywhere at once. I think that's something that falls in each of our categories, in each of our laps. Right? But these are just some verses that help describe who God is and that there's nothing hidden from him. Matthew 10, 29 through 30, he knows every hair. Jeremiah 1, 5, knew him before he was born. Nahum 1, verse 7, God knows every person who has chosen to trust him. Exodus 33, 12 and 17, he knows us by name. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, knows the wickedness of our hearts. John 3, verse 20, knows our hearts and all things. 1 Kings 8, 39, knows the hearts of all the children of men. Ecclesiastes, God will bring every deed into judgment. 
with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Romans 2, 16, God judges the secret of men by Christ Jesus. And why is this important? Because in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, or 5, verses 9 through 10, we're told, for we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Let me read that again. For we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You will sit before the judge so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then he asks, then what? What if you saw me? Would that be proof? What if you saw the Son of Man ascending where he was before into heaven? Would you believe then? Is that what it's going to take? Then what? This question was meant to make them stop and think. Because they're grumbling, and at this point, he's asking, you aren't going to like what you find when you do your own self-reflection. When you've got to truly look at your life and see if it falls in line with God, you're going to realize you're not going to like what you see. The question is to made to stop them think, to make them stop and think for a minute. So we see here in verses 63 through 64, it's the spiritual life that comes from the Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And it was who, and who it was who would betray him. See, spiritual life comes only from the Spirit that imparts life, or Christ's life to the believer. It's Christ, it's the Spirit of God that helps us realize who Jesus is. There's nothing we do. I want you to understand that. There's nothing we can do to help us believe that God is real, that Jesus is was Lord. It's not our work. There are no seekers. It's the Spirit. It's God's work. The title for this sermon is Redemption is the Work of God. Redemption is the work of God. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We are drawn to salvation by God. 
This means he uses his word and the work of the spirit to draw us. As we begin to read the scriptures, God reveals himself more and more to us. We are drawn to him. For those of us that believe and have faith, when you read, that thirst begins to be nourished. We begin to feel full. For those that don't, he tells us in verse 64, it's not the lack of information, but a lack of faith for those that reject Jesus and salvation. It's not a lack of information. It's not a lack of miracles. The proof is here. They had the scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament, but they had the Old Testament. They had the scriptures, and it all points to Jesus. Why did Jesus come to show them how he's fulfilling the Old Testament? Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the word. Then Paige's big hands. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He was here in the beginning. He is the creator. He is the light in the darkness. can't do it on your own. You're not self-reliant. The world does not revolve around you. You're not omniscient. You're not omnipresent. Most importantly, you're not omnipotent. You're not all-powerful. As much as we like to think so and that we control our own destiny, we know how easily that doesn't happen. So, what's the point? Well, let's, let's spend some time in verse 65. Salvation is the solo work of God. Salvation is the solo work of God. Verse 65. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It's not you, it's God. Because even though all the things you've seen, the raising of the dead, the healing of the sick, me walking on water, me feeding you out of five loaves and two fishes, you still don't believe. Because it was up to you, you would start to believe. It's only God that can grant you faith. Now for some of us, that's hard to understand. That is a hard saying, but it's truth. 
I had a hard time believing it. I had a hard time understanding. I would read it, okay, it says it, but I just don't get it. It was only God that removed the scales. It was only God that revealed who he was. And then it all became apparent. Every verse I started turning to, I began to see the power of God. I began to see that it was God doing the work and not me. It was so clearly communicated. It was right there in every single verse. And he says it here. God is absolutely sovereign in salvation. Let's look at John 3, 16 through 17. Famous verse, right? Everybody knows John 3, 16. You'll see it on signs, people holding up signs. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we think that's the end of it. And we stop. But then we got to look at verse 17. For, right, the whole reason of verse 16 was for this reason, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Who's doing the work? It's God. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. And I can't tell you how many times I've planned my way and God makes me go another way. Ephesians 1, 4, we just saw that here shortly when Casey read it. We were chosen before the foundation of the world. Isaiah 54, 13, and, and John 6, which is reiterated in John 6, 45, that people should be taught. People don't come to God under the sway and wooing of human reason. They are drawn by God. I can't convince someone when I go out and share the word that God is real. It's not me. If they begin to believe that Christ is the one and only way and Jesus is our Lord and Savior, it is a work of God and not me. When you go out and share the word, it's not you that does the saving. It's God. How do we know this? Well, one, no one seeks God. Everyone is unrighteous. Look at John 6, 37. All that the Father has given will come to him. We are slave to sin, Romans 6, 6. Therefore, we can't come to God. We think, what we think is freedom is actual slavery. All this stuff about, I'm free to make my own choices. I have the right to do this. I have the right to do that. Well, guess what? You're living in a fantasy world. You're a slave to sin. John 6, 44 and 65. No one will come to the Father. Romans 3, 10 through 11. As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God.
So where does that leave us? If I can't seek God on my own, who's doing the work? Why did I all of a sudden start looking at God? Why did I start desiring the things of God? Why did I want to have a relationship with God? Why did I want to know Christ? Because it was God that did the work in me. It was God that removed the scales. It was God that drew me to him. Why? Because salvation glorifies God. Now for those of us that believe in the doctrine of election, we love to quote Romans 9.13. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Oops, sorry. But we take this out of context sometimes. It's not so much that he hated Esau. But how could he love Jacob? When you read that story, you start reading who Jacob was. I mean, you're talking about a guy that deceitfully tries to take the birthright of Esau. Remember, he goes as far as what? Going to his blind father and putting this fur on his arms and his hands. So when his blind father starts to reach out and feels him, he goes, oh, it's Esau. But you just don't. Something's not quite right. So the question isn't, hey, he hated Esau, but how could he love Jacob? So we should be asking ourselves, why me? Why has God chosen me? It's to glorify himself. Why does God choose anyone? Well, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm here to glorify God. What's God's will? To believe in Christ and to glorify him. So what, how, how do we know this? How how do we know our salvation is secure? How do we know that Jesus came as a salvation for the elect? Verses 37 and 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of whom him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has been given me, but raise it up on the last day. He can't lose. You cannot be lost. You cannot lose your salvation. Our salvation is secure. Our security rests in Jesus. As we look at John 10, 27 to 30, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and just move to John 10. And we'll look at 27 through 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, 
and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. He is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If God is all-powerful, and you have been saved, how can you lose that saving grace? You can't. So what's that say when we say someone walked away from the faith? They never had it. It's not that they walked away. It's the fact they weren't saved from the beginning. See, we take it for granted sometimes as we sit in church that we believe everybody's a believer and everybody's saved. Well, the truth of the matter is, not everybody is. And therefore, we as believers can't sit there and take for granted that God's just going to do the work and we've got no role to play in it. We've been commanded to go out and share the word, to be examples of the light, to show that Christ dwells in us. His life should be thrown, shown through our lives. We should be standing apart. We should be looked upon differently. Someone should be able to walk in and say, there's something different about you. How many of us live lives like that? How many of us live lives that are living testimonies to Christ? No one can break this union with God. Look at Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing that could snatch you from his hands. Our salvation is secure. Why? Because it is the sole work of God. It's the sole work of God. It is from God. It is by God. Therefore, being all-powerful and being all-knowing and being present everywhere at any one time, it can't be lost. as we prayer to conclude I want to remind us that redemption is the work of God why are these words so hard well as we've seen throughout the last few weeks people are full of pride pride in intellect pride in self pride in anything but right one of our biggest and hardest things for us to do is to submit. One of the hardest things for us to do is to just submit. We want to be in control. 
No one likes answering to a boss. Our kids don't want to sit there and follow us sometimes or they want to question what we tell them to do. Mason, don't smile. <laughs> okay? That, that, that's a hard thing. It happens to all of us. But the people wanted what they wanted and they wanted what they expected. And what were they were expecting? They were expecting Jesus to be a high, powerful ruler that took over and led them the way they wanted him to lead. They wanted another David. And Jesus is telling them that's not why he's here. He's here for something far greater, far greater. He's there to give them eternal life. And he begins to explain how the scriptures point that out because he is the living word. They wanted the physical. They wanted to be satiated without being nourished. They wanted to feel filled without everything else that came with it. So they wanted to go on and continue to eat their Chinese food and continue to be hungry. Yeah, I'm getting some more, but I'm still hungry. Let's eat some more. They were never full. We are only nourished by the grace of God, the grace of redemption through the act of Jesus, the Christ. Through his birth, through his sinless life, through his death on a cross, and his defeat and power over death in the resurrection, we are able to bask in this redemptive work of the Lord. This is the gift that was given to us. This is the gift of life. This is why we celebrate Christmas. It has nothing to do with us. And we get so caught up in the holidays and everything else that begins to happen, we tend to forget why we're even celebrating. It's not about the lights on the tree. It's not about the lights on the house. It's not about waking up at four o'clock Black Friday morning to go grab that present. No. We celebrate Christmas to celebrate Christ, our Lord and Savior, our life giver, our bread of life. We celebrate the nourishment he gives us to fill that spiritual thirst and hunger. It's not just the story of little baby Jesus. There are hard things in the Bible, and we see that here in John 6. Because we hear them begin to grumble. And Matthew's going to go into more of what begins to happen next week when he preaches and closes John 6. Because it is hard, and some struggle. But what's that mean for us? If you choose to believe parts of the Bible you like, but reject the parts you don't like, then you really don't believe in the Bible. You don't believe in the things of God. Yes, there are hard things here. There are things that we sit there and read and go, I don't understand. There are things in here we sit there and question. There's things we sit here and read and go, I don't know about that. But does that make them untrue? 
No. It means I got to accept that, that this is true. And I got to tweak my thoughts to this, not tweak this to my thoughts. Which tends to be what happens out in the world. And people misuse and misinterpret the word every day. But the fact of the matter is, we don't have the right and privilege to do that. We are to conform and have our minds renewed by the very words of God. And take for the fact that this is truth. And when we read those hard things, when we see those things that we sit there and question and scratch our heads and go, hmm, why are we doing that? Sometimes it's that self-look and we're the ones being prideful. We're the ones taking offense. Why? Because it's pointing out our sinful hearts. It's pointing out our self-reliance. It's pointing out our rebellion against our creator. So now what? What does all this mean? I've heard the words. I understand the context. We've looked and answered those questions. We know what God's meaning by this, but now what? What's the application? What do I do with this? Well, one, let the doctrine of election encourage you to exalt God. Let the doctrine of election encourage you to exalt God. If your belief, if your chosenness doesn't drive you to praise God, then there's something wrong. Realize that election is the result of God's mercy and we are responsible to respond. Divine sovereignty does not negate human responsibility. The other thing we should take away from this is that saying we don't need to go out and preach the word, to speak the truth, or to go out and evangelize goes clearly against the command of scriptures and to misunderstand the work of God. He determines the means. To say that God knows ahead of time of who's going to believe, for God to... For us to say that God is the one that chooses believers doesn't negate your work of going out and sharing the word. You don't know the means or who or the how that will happen in somebody's life. Just because someone doesn't believe today doesn't mean they don't believe tomorrow. Just because someone says they believe today doesn't mean they truly believe. That is not our place. We are not to be catchers but fishers. It is not our duty to guess or determine who the elect are but to clearly share the gospel and believe ourselves. And 
one of the biggest things, and you can see it on the screen, that I wanted to point out. And this is a point Pastor Clay made a few weeks ago, and it's just, it's just been ringing in my ears for the last few weeks. Let our lives be a demonstration of the doctrine we know. Are we living the word? Are we living by faith? Are we living what we say we believe in? Or do our lives point to something else? Are we hypocrites? Look at your life. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's telling them to look at their lives. Stop relying on yourself and rely on me. I am the bread of life. I am the only one that can nourish you. I am the only one that can give you what you need. Stop going elsewhere. Believe in me and be saved. Believe in me and have eternal life. This is God. Do our lives demonstrate this doctrine? Do we live lives in this manner? Let's not be casual in our understanding. The irresistible grace of God should drive us to his throne. Let our lives be a demonstration of the doctrine we know that redemption is the work of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just humbly come before you, Lord. We thank you for the gift of grace that you've shown us, Lord. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the gift of redemption. Lord, we thank you for this gift of salvation that you have provided, Lord. Lord, it is only through your work, your sending, your life-giving blood that draws us into a relationship with you, Lord. Lord, I pray that we are driven to our knees with hearts full of thanks and love for you, for things and desires of you. Lord, let our lives, please, Lord, demonstrate your goodness, your character, your attributes. Let our lives point to you. Let you receive all the credit and glory, Lord. Fill us full of humility. Rip away that self-reliance, Lord, that self-power. Lord, we thank you and love you every day. We thank you for the words 
of truth. Even when they're hard, Lord. Even when they go against the logical. Even when they go against the things my heart's desiring at the time. Lord, renew my mind, conform my heart, and just drive me to my knees to worship you. What an honor and privilege it is, Lord, to stand here today and just preach your words. Lord, I pray your words pierce the hearts. And if there's anything that was said, that was set out of context or that just be stricken from the minds and hearts of those that heard. As we go out in the world today, Lord, especially this time of year where people are willing and able to listen, as people begin to say they believe or they agree or we're celebrating for this, Lord, let us seize this moment that you're creating, Lord to go out and share your word, to share the truth. Let us be the means, Lord, that you use to bring people to you. Let us take comfort in the fact that it's not us that are responsible to do the saving, but to just go out and share the word. That you will do all the catching, Lord. You're completely sovereign in everything you do, Lord, and that should bring us comfort and joy and give us the strength and encouragement to go out and share the gospel. Lord, we thank you and we come before you today through your son's blood, through your son's life, through your son's resurrection of defeating death by raising from the dead and then ascending into heaven, who sits at your right hand. It's through his name we pray. Amen.